There are only a handful of passages in the Bible that have been so special to people over the ages that they get their own names. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the most famous of those passages. Jesus never called it the Sermon on the Mount, nor did Matthew, the writer, but we do. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. We've come to call the prayer that Jesus prays in the garden right before he's going to be arrested and executed. You know what we call it? Who knows? Somebody knows. Say it. The high priestly prayer. Yeah. Uh, there's another passage in Philippians 2 that at least we um, theologians call, I'm not really a theologian, I guess, but whatever. You know, people who go to school about this stuff, we call the kenosis passage from Philippians 2. I'm actually going to read it for you because it comes from the word, the Greek word that's used for emptying yourself or humbling yourself, kenosis. So, uh, Philippians 2, the apostle Paul writes these words, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He kenosified himself. That's not how it goes, but kenosis. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him that name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That song that Mary sang when she learned that she was to give birth to the Messiah that Blaze just read for us is another one of those passages that gets its own name because it's just been so special to so many people for so long. They call it, we call it, the Magnificat. The word Magnificat comes from the Latin for It magnifies. It magnifies. Magnificat, if you were reading a Latin Bible, magnificat is the first word in the passage. Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. Now stop right there for a second. You probably haven't thought that much about that word, that phrase, magnify the Lord before. But what does it mean for your soul to magnify the Lord? I mean, come on, that cannot be done. The other day, I was with Sarah somewhere. I can't remember where I was when I did the thing. You know what I'm talking about? I, I, oh, yeah, okay. So I wanted to see on a sign. I, it was too small. The writing was too small. And I just, without thinking, subconsciously, I did this in, in, in the air, in the air. As if I could make the piece of paper bigger <laughs> before my face. And I kind of quickly noticed it, put my hand down. But Sarah noticed, saw it before I could hide my hand. And she got, she got a chuckle out of that. But that's sort of what, 
magnify the Lord? Come on now. Can you stand in front of the Empire State Building and, and in any way, shape, or form make it bigger? Can you look at the sun and make it hotter or brighter? In what sense can you magnify the Lord? It can't be done. You cannot make God bigger. God is already as big as he can be. You cannot make God happier. God is already as happy as he can be. He was perfectly happy before he made the world. That's why it's so important that we understand that God is a trinity. If God's not a trinity, then before he made the world, how could he have been loving? Huh? Who? Because to be love requires you to love someone or something. If God was all there was before he made the world, there was nothing to love. Therefore, God cannot be love. Trinity is a very important, a very important doctrine, a very important thing to know about God. But no, because God is three persons in one God, he's always known perfect love within himself. He's been the perfect lover and the perfect beloved. Now along comes Mary, or you, or me, or whatever, and we say to God, I got something for you. Could be my obedience. Could be, all right, I'll give to the poor if you do this. Or so long as you try to make bargains with God, you know, as if we have something that he needs or wants. And it's really very silly. I'm going to magnify you. Come on, Mary. So what does Mary mean then? Question number one of the day. What does Mary mean when she says, when she sings, rather, my soul magnifies the Lord? Well, I'm sure you could all come up with the right answer or even better answers than I if we had time. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you the answer. <laughs> she means that she wants to make God greater in the eyes of others. That's what her soul desires to do as a result of this encounter with Almighty God. She's amazed and she can't help it. She has to tell others. A song bursts forth from her heart. What is a song? A song isn't really for the person singing it, I guess unless you're in the shower, but a song's not really for the person singing it. A song is for the person hearing it, the people hearing it. It's for the audience. It's for the listener. Mary is singing. She's singing for Elizabeth's benefit. She's singing for the benefit of anybody else who was in the room. She probably, as she's going back home, she sang it for Joseph. She sang it for the disciples. She sang it. Maybe she sang it to Jesus all his life. Maybe it was a lullaby that she sang to him every night as he was going to sleep. Yeah. Now, there's nothing profound or very, very special here so far. It's normal human nature to want to magnify the things that amaze us. We can't help it. Amazement, it cannot stay within you. We do this about technology. 
I think I've told you in this room before the story about when I was in the Navy band. When was it? 2002-ish or 3-ish? When did the iPod come out? Somewhere around that area. And I wasn't the first, but I was the second guy in the Navy band to have one. The first guy I got one, I saw that, and I said, what in the world? And all pretty soon, everybody, every single one of us, had one, because we were musicians, so all of us had a wall of CDs at home, right? And we would say, you mean to tell me that I can put those hundreds of CDs, cracked, scratched, disorganized, taken up space in my house, and I can put them in my breast pocket? I got to tell everyone I know about this. And I did. And we all bought them. And I bought a little bit of Apple stock, too, which I still have. (laughs) We do this with human interest stories. If we're amazed by a story, man saves 12 kittens from rushing river in a flood, and it makes the evening news. It's not really news. Not technically. I mean, why does that make the news? It makes the news because it's amazing, and we want to tell each other about it. Nature. You see, you're an artist. You're a painter, right? You have this talent to paint, and you see a beautiful sunset, and you just have to paint it. You paint it. Why do you paint it? Do you make the sunset any greater by painting it? No. You've taken this grand miracle of God, and you've put it on a little piece of paper or canvas. And it's far less, you know, perfect or stunning. Even a photograph. It's not the same thing. You're not making the thing greater. In fact, you're diminishing the thing. One time I gave a kid's message about that. That's why God says, don't make images of me. As soon as you start to make an image of God, you're diminishing him. Anyways, besides the point. No, when you are amazed by that sunset or that rainbow and you just have to snap a picture or you just have to paint a painting or you just have to make a sculpture, why are you doing that? You're doing that because you want somebody else to experience it too. You want to share it with somebody. And if I can paint a really great painting of that sunset, maybe they'll put it in an art museum or at the hallway at the courthouse and some and other people will get to enjoy even just a, 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 an approximate representation. Other people will still get to enjoy that. It's just, I have to do it because it's amazing. Love. Love. Don't you remember when you were so in love that you had to run up to the top of the hill and just shout it from, I love her and she loves me. Love amazes us. Love amazes us. And we, we can't keep it to ourselves. And then if your love lasts for long, much longer after that, you'll have to proclaim it in front of a bunch of people in a, in a minister in a suit and tie, right? Amazement drives us to magnify in the eyes of others the thing that amazes us. Now, are you amazed by God? Are you amazed like you are with technology, with really cool human interest stories, with natural wonders, 
with love and human passion. Are you amazed by God with that kind of amazement? Amazement, speaking of which, it's all I'm really going to speak about today, so speaking of which, amazement, did you know it's actually a really great assurance of salvation? It's not unusual for a Christian to wonder in his or her life, am I really saved? Am I a true believer? Do I really belong to Jesus? Because I'm kind of doubting. I don't think I love him enough, or my faith is enough, or I don't know enough, or whatever. People, it's, it, it's not unusual for people to have these doubts. But the next time, if this, if this is a, a thought that comes into your mind at all, the next time I would, that, that happens, I would say, look for amazement. Look for it. Look for it. Are you amazed by who God is and what He's done? I think too many people, now here I'm going to get serious for just a second, but I think too many people out there when that nagging question starts coming into their mind, am I really a believer? Am I really? They say something like, well, I've always gone to church. Or, well, I believe X, Y, and Z to be true. And then they push the thought out of their mind. But this is why I say that's a, that I'm getting serious for a second. Did you know that the devil is a true believer? The devil believes everything you do about Jesus, that he's fully God, fully man, that he was born of a virgin, Mary, in Bethlehem, that he died on the cross to pay for the sins of those he loves and who love him, that he rose again, and that he will come again to defeat the devil forever. The devil knows that the Bible is the inspired word of God. The devil knows more about the Bible than you do. And the devil knows more about Jesus than you do. The devil is a believer. Maybe that should have been the title of the sermon. I would have got more hits that way, huh? So what's the difference between the devil and Mary? Or the devil and you? The devil is not amazed by God. The devil wants to magnify himself. He might be interested in using God as a tool to magnify himself, but the devil has no interest in magnifying the Lord in the eyes of others. He doesn't want to magnify God's goodness. The devil is essentially jealous of God. The devil wants what God has. The devil wants to be God. He thinks he should be able to tell God a thing or two about how this world should work or about how God should do things. And ultimately, the fact that the devil can't tell God a thing or two The fact that God needs absolutely nothing from the devil drives him to hate God. He just can't stand it. 
the devil is not amazed by God. Friends, look for the amazement in your life. Are you amazed? Does your soul, like Mary's, instinctively yearn to magnify the greatness of your God in the eyes of others? Some of you might say, yeah, pastor, it sure does, and I'm so glad that it does. But others maybe are saying, I'm not so sure. I, 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 it's, a lot, it's, it's really easy for me to be amazed by nice displays of Christmas lights. But if I'm to be honest with you, it's been a while since I've really been bowled over in amazement by my God. Well, what do you do? What do you do if you don't have that, a sense, that sense of amazement? Or if you used to have it and you don't have it anymore? Or if God is just too often, He seems boring to you? What do you do? Beat yourself up? No. What do you do? Despair? No, don't do that. What do you do? One, one thing you can do is you come back to the story. You remember the story. I'm going to close by talking about this very thing. You have to remember, why is the Christmas story so amazing? Why is God so amazing? Mary gives us the answer in verse 48 of chapter 1. Mary says, for he has looked on the humble a state of his servant. That's it right there. That's it. God, who needs nothing from you, who is perfectly happy and joyful and peaceful and loving without you, sees you. And he is filled with compassion for you. That's what Christmas proclaims. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 3, 16 and 17. If you're trying to be amazed by God because He is so big, so powerful, so old, I don't know, that's only going to get you so far because you can be amazed by a mountain that's really big. You can be amazed by the galaxy galaxies that are really, they're mind-bogglingly big, right? But a mountain or a galaxy has never denied itself to love you. A mountain and a galaxy has never made itself small to save you. We are not simply amazed that God is good or that God is loving. No, being pure goodness 
with a capital G, being pure love with a capital L, we're amazed at where God directs that love, at the object of God's affection, us, dirty, smelly, rebellious, selfish, devilish sometimes. At us, that's the amazing thing. He has seen your helpless estate. He has seen what you would do with your life if you were in charge. And you know what he said? If I don't do something, so he did. So he acted. He made himself small. Even though he needed nothing. Because he loves us so much. And because he did, he has done what you could never do for yourself. He has made an end to all your sin. And the devil has no claim on your life if you give your life to Jesus. You know that Christmas is only the beginning of the story, right? Christmas is only the first step on the road to Calvary. But in a way, yeah, it's incredible that God would die, right? Absolutely, that he would die for us. But isn't it almost just as incredible that he would confine himself in a woman's womb for us? That he would become a man for us? That kind of humility? Man, that is amazing. But just like the the Christmas is the first step on the road to Calvary. When you put your faith in Jesus, that's only the first step of a lifetime with him that extends into forever. When you'll know that one who loves you that much, face to face, arm in arm, side by side. Forever and ever, over a new creation. I mean, if you want to be amazed, put the phone down, switch off the TV, and just think about that for a while. Father, we ask that you would bless us all with a, um, the word rekindle comes to mind. This Christmas season, rekindle in our hearts the fire of your love. Sometimes when the campfire is going out or we have a fire pit going at my house, I think uh, I need to not just put more fuel on it, but I need to get on my hands and knees and I need to, I need to blow the air under the fire. Holy Spirit, would you do that for us, each of us today, watching, listening, present here with me, Lord, blow fresh air upon the flames of our hearts. Amaze us 
with who you are for the first time or for the thousandth time. Would you please do this for us? In Jesus' name, amen.